the Almeida Theatre Podcast. Today's podcast is with Adam Cork. Adam Cork is a sound designer and composer of international recognition, uh, multi-award winning. He's a fantastically sophisticated sound designer, but really as a composer, he's come to greater and greater recognition, particularly through his now legendary musical London Road uh, that began at the National. I first worked with Adam when we were both in our early 20s and he has probably worked with me on more shows as a creative than I think anybody else. Um, I caught up with Adam to talk about his work with me and with other people on sound design and composition from his home during lockdown. So, Adam, how are you finding lockdown and this period of, of quarantine and isolation? Uh, well, it's funny. I was talking to uh, Matthew Scott the other day on the phone. He used to be the head of music at the National, uh, and we're mm. still good friends. And he was saying, he was saying, in some ways, we're we're better equipped than some people to handle this, aren't we? Because we spend a lot of time on our own as composers, <laughs> um, and in my case, composer, sound designer, making mm. stuff. Um, and actually, that's yeah, that's true. I'm kind of used to. Um, heading towards a deadline and sometimes staying up all night and um, mm. being by myself in that way. So, yeah, I do have the resources to call upon yeah. to get through it. However, um, there isn't particularly a deadline this time. So <laughs> that's the one missing <laughs> ingredient. <laughs> Tell me about it. So um, do you find you're like hearing differently? Do you, I mean, people have talked a bit about sort of... Oh, the, well, the, definitely. The... There's, you know, there are no, no, no real planes in the sky. Mm. There's, not, there, there's f- far less traffic than there was, although that seems to be getting a bit busier again. Um, yeah. And actually, that was so nice. It's really lovely to be able to hear the birds. And I went for a run in my local park. I'm I'm a little bit near the river, but really not not very near the river. And I heard seagulls, which I've never ever heard in that park before. So um, mm-hmm. it is really nice, and I hope that when yeah. things get back to normal, if they ever do get back to normal, that um, we we remember what how nice it was. Yeah, absolutely. And do something about it. So let's let's talk about your I guess oh, you know fairly unique position that you're a, you're a sound designer and a composer. Um, and maybe for those who, who, who are interested in sound design and the work you do, but maybe don't know exactly what a, a sound designer in theatre is, can you, can you tell us a bit about like, what the job is and, and, and what, what it involves? Well, it's, it's lots of things, actually. And I, and I started as a composer, and I suppose I would, um, I would classify composing music as creating content. But a sound designer not only creates content, but has to attend to the delivery of that content um, as well in terms of um, specifying the kinds of speakers he or she wants to use in a show and the kinds of microphones and thinking about how to cover a room, sort of very um, technical considerations, really. Um, So you have to, well, I find I have to split myself into into two different people, really. One of them is the, the dreamer who is reaching for the mystery of the meaning of the piece um, uh, in order to create stuff that properly serves the production and the director's vision of the production. Um, and the other half is someone who has to just be eminently practical and make sure everything's in place on time and make sure that it's been set up in such a way that I can I can use it very quickly as we're doing technical rehearsals. Um, it just on terms of the creative side, but but, but before we, we get onto the composing, so in terms of generation of, of an, a, a soundscape and a sound world for a play, um, wh- where does that begin for you? What's what what do you do first? 
Um, sometimes it's uh, I, I, I sort of keep my mind open and I read the play and I will meet with a director and I'll get a sense of that director's take on what we're doing and where he or she wants mm-hmm. to go with it. Um, so from that point forward, usually um, there's a, a shape in my mind, an inchoate shape in my mind, which isn't necessarily um, a sound picture at all. It's just a sort mm-hmm. of a weird shape that I'm reaching towards. Um, and if that isn't enough for me to go on, I will look to sound clues and cues in a script and put together a kind of library of, of sounds which I'm, I'm associating with the, with the project, which mm-hmm. then become part of uh, the vocabulary. Um, and mm-hmm. I punctuate my music or my soundscapes with those sounds um, and fiddle with them, uh, mm-hmm. turn them into, into sounds that you don't quite recognize as being concrete, but they still mm-hmm. have a relationship to those literal sounds. And, and are you um, making those sounds? Or, sometimes or from... I make them. Sometimes I start with a, a library recording. Sometimes I'll record them myself if there's nothing I can find that really does the trick from sound effect libraries. Um, mm. Sometimes I'll sing. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't end up sounding like it's a human being singing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so can you, can you give uh, an example from any of your your shows you've got there about how you sort of layer sounds together when, when, when you're putting, um, when, you, when you're working on that. I suppose, so. I suppose a, a good, a good recent example would be, uh, uh, ink that you and I did mm. together, um, <laughs> where the, it, it was all about the sun newspaper, uh, mm-hmm. getting, getting going back in the late sixties and early seventies. And so the sounds of, um, that 1970s office kind of became part mm. of the musical vocabulary. Uh, I'll play you an example. Yeah, so you kind of get the yeah. I'm, I'm using typewriters as percussion instruments. The um, the sound of uh, keys clacking down on old-fashioned typewriters kind of stands in for snare drum effects, nineteen um, seventies mm-hmm. phones, and the and the carriage return dings all become part mm-hmm. of the kind of ambient texture in a way um, mm-hmm. to the point where hopefully you you forget that that's the source, but it's it's still there, uh, linking you into that world. So that's your rhythm track, in effect. Well, it was in that in that mm. instance, yeah, yeah. And, and and then when you layering, it's obviously in, in that those pieces. You're also, we're also hearing instrumentation and yeah, um, brass and stuff and that sort of Sweeney sound that we talked about. Like, so when does that come in? How do you, how do you stack those elements? I kind of do it all together. I don't I don't um, I don't do the sound effect track and then the music track. It all becomes mm. one kind of act of uh, integrated creation because i don't find that um it works for me very well to start with one layer it all Mm -hmm. has to become material uh as it becomes material rather than in in sedimentary layers like that even though it's possible to subsequently go back and analyze the layers (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and are you scoring it are you writing that on score or 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 a software program Uh, sometimes i do sometimes i do sometimes i don't if i'm just using samples i might just play in what i know i want it to sound like and uh-huh. it's really wasted labor to write that down on the score because and and, 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 and just 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 again because i know nothing about this really like how, what do you mean playing in are you playing that on a keyboard from the samples yeah playing a keyboard that might be you know um playing a cello sample uh, mm. or another instrumental type um 
for you know another keyboard type instrument like uh, a Celesta or like you just mm-hmm. heard some 1970s uh, Rhodes style keyboards there in that example. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but uh, but uh, on other occasions when I know that I can't get the results I want without actually recording a proper real instrumentalist, then obviously I'll I'll write that down and notate it, and we'll go to the studio and I'll mm. record it and then layer that back in and produce it so that it sounds integrated with everything else. Uh-huh. And um, and and do you think the fact that you're composing is influencing the 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 the, the nature of the sound effects as well? I mean, are you pitching them or or, or um... Uh, yeah, yeah, fairly, fairly often. I mean, if it's if it's a if it's a sound that has a definite pitch and that clashes with the the harmonies of the music, then mm-hmm. I'll repitch it to make it fit in. Uh, if that's mm-hmm. if that's the, the the tonal effect I want, sometimes dissonance is is uh, desirable depending on mm-hmm. you know the dramatic moment and the and the mood you're trying to create. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll 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 fiddle with those sounds quite a lot to to make them serve the piece. Mm-hmm. And and so so which of your Sound worlds are you proudest of in terms of that dovetailing of, of score and and sound effect? Um, there are two actually I can think of. Um, one of them is Faustus that you and I did back in was it two thousand five slash six. So yeah, um, I'll play the example. There were several things I wanted to achieve that I think both of us wanted to achieve with that with that link um, between scenes. Uh, the 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 uh, the outgoing scene was med- medieval, and the incoming scene was twenty first century. So that sense of pulling from one time period to another, uh, which in that instance I think I achieved by um, I recorded myself singing a miserere that I'd composed, and then I reversed that miserere, so you get that kind of pulling pulling sensation. And that weird feeling of time turning backwards and and on its head, um, and at the same time layering layering in sound effects of um, screams and scissors and demonic children's laughter, mm-hmm. uh, because that's all in keeping with the 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 Faustian idea that we were exploring of of defacing. It was all mm-hmm. about the the Chapman brothers, pair of contemporary artists mm-hmm. defacing some goyers. It was your adaptation. It was your idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, the, the scissors was like cutting up a work of art, and mm-hmm. you know the children laughing were like the almost um, demonic figures um, issuing up from hell and mm-hmm. forcing the artists uh, perhaps beyond the point where they thought they would go in terms of defacing works of art from the past. Yeah. So it's also like layers of time landing on top of each other and and defacing each other as well. Uh-huh. So just to talk a bit, um, um, one of the, the things that I think is part of your your brilliance is um 
it's interesting. I remember thinking that maybe on uh, for composing for screen, often the music and the sound world is is binding together the cut, so it sort of goes over the paragraphs of both scenes to scenes, but also cuts within scenes, uh, which is almost the antithesis of of theatre, where often you are asking for music and score to lift you from one scene and then deliver you with a kind of hard, sharp, energized edge into the next scene. And you know, we could hear in that last cue that very strong button at the end how do you how, how do you um how do you deal with the fact when you've made something that is a kind of a piece of music in school that you're, you're really happy with but the kind of pragmatics of the amount of time it takes to change the scene on the stage means you either have to cut that down or expand that is, is that a challenge um it used to be a big challenge um i used to get very emotional about it <laughs> <laughs> um and nowadays i I'm, I'm very good at um doing the split personality thing and saying to myself now look you've, you've been paid to come here and do a job and your job is to make your music fit this play now you just need to get on with it and mm. part of the reason i'm able no longer to get emotional about that is that more often than not uh, once i look back on what we've achieved and we mm. see the whole thing put together i recognize the value of what i've done in terms of making that cut and even mm. though sometimes i think oh no but i spent four hours doing that and i was so happy with it i i kind of know that it's much better for the show that we're not sat there listening to the 30 seconds extra that I wrote with nothing else going on, because <laughs> that's not the medium. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes your stuff is so great, though, that I just try and extend the scene change to fit it. <laughs> I know, and bless you, and you're very, you're very, you're, you're quite unique. Uh, uh, um, well, you're not, you're not completely unique, but um, but some directors do want, do want to move on, and, 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 and rightly so, but it's very sweet of you to, uh, to indulge that. Um, so, so what was the other piece? You said you had two that you, you felt were... Oh, the other one was um, uh, time, time in the Conways that we did at yeah. the National in 2009. Um, I'll just play you that example. So yeah, that uh, kind of links into into Faustus in the in the in the way that um, uh, different time periods are being represented. But whereas time was simply a, a matter of uh, two different periods of time that we were flicking between in Faustus, in Time in the Conways, it's all about time um, mm. and the and the effects of time. Um, so it's a bit more abstract the way I approach sound in that one. Um, obviously the, the, the musical evolution, the way the harmonies evolve and the way the tempos 
um, change quickly and change again back uh, in that piece of music um, is a bit more abstract. Um, and I, th I think I approach that um, thinking of sound as more of a cosmic substance, some sort of um, structure of time in the universe. Um, mm -hmm. And the idea of, of there's 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 also a kind of slightly it's it's set in the early twentieth century, but there's there's a prominent Schubert piece, and there's this kind of bourgeois family idea, um, mm -hmm. which is whatever you think of the family, and some of them aren't that likable. Mm -hmm. There's something about their fragility, located in time, and now even mm -hmm. for us, you know, long after Priestley himself is dead, mm -hmm. um, there's something about the fact that they're all gone and even he's yeah. gone <laughs> yeah that i wanted to get across in that and that we actually we we, we choreographed a big sequence didn't we to that to that Absolutely. piece yeah. of music um with uh, the character of k splitting into the different versions of herself echoing through yeah. the the multiverse yeah yeah so so in those three pieces we heard we, we've heard a sort of Schubert influences. We've got bits of um, almost uh, Gregorian style singing in, in Faustus, followed by bits of drum and bass kind of um, rhythms, and then we've got uh, a sort of dirty jazz, sixties jazz sound in Ink. It, it is. Um, I mean, that's an extraordinarily sort of eclectic roster. It, do you do? Do you listen to a lot of stuff? Do you? How, how do you have such yeah, a breadth? Yeah, I do. Of... I don't. I don't really. I don't really have a grand plan. But around around that time, I was. I was. I was. Um keen to be influenced by shuffle <laughs> i had a really big ipod uh, full of all kinds of music from different eras and different styles and i would just allow it to to go where it wanted to go um, mm -hmm. if it shuffled to something i really didn't feel like listening to then i would shuffle forward mm -hmm. but uh the power of accident around that time was, was really important to me in terms of uh, being influenced and also yeah. not to be uh, stuck in any particular tradition be it classical art music or pop yeah uh, or you know um or western european um yeah yeah uh, nowadays i'm a little more targeted but you yeah. know I, I just I, I switch it up there's nothing worse than think than um the oughts and shoulds uh style of uh, listening mm -hmm. to music like, oh i don't you know i don't know marla's third symphony as well as i should i'd better sit down for a morning and listen to it it's like mm -hmm. only do that if you feel like it <laughs> <laughs> so what about um what about your work as a composer specifically then and you know you obviously were you musical from a like super young age uh, my mum bought a piano when i was six um, mm. and she bought it for herself because she'd done she'd got as far as grade four when she was little and she wanted she sort of wanted to take it up again she'd always regretted giving up Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I don't remember that much about it. But she says the moment it was in the house, I would be running over to it and uh, trying to work out tunes from the children's TV programs I was watching. Um, and not only that, but cop trying to copy the pieces that she was playing, which was she was kind of she was doing not bad actually. She was mm -hmm. doing Clementi and Chopin and things like that. And I wasn't, mm -hmm. I obviously wasn't playing them perfectly, but I was doing my best to make my little hands do what mm -hmm. I saw her hands do. Uh, so yeah, she got she got me piano lessons from that point going forward, and then I went to the Junior Royal Academy of Music uh, when I was a teenager mm -hmm. on Saturday mornings. And, so, and what composers were big influences on you, kind of when you were? To be honest, I didn't really get that get that into what we call classical music um, until I was about sixteen, and I started mm -hmm. listening. Actually, I first of all started listening to quite uh, ecclesiastical music, mm -hmm. Choir of King's College singing um, Palestrina and um, Allegri mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, 
and uh, but but I was you know I was listening to mainstream eighties pop music up to that point. Mm. That's what I liked, mm-hmm. um, and that's you know that's still an influence on me now. I don't need to mm-hmm. listen to any of it ever again because it's part of me. Peter Gabriel, yeah. Phil Collins, Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I feel like the two the two hallmarks of your composition, certainly when I talk to the actors and singers you task with having to deliver some of it, is um, just a really um, natural ear for harmony and, and complexities in harmony, but also um, unbelievably difficult time signatures. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I remember the one we were doing Enron, just seeing the actors sweating with, with with panic about trying to execute some of the time signatures until, until they got it in. <laughs> Uh, and then, and then also, let, let's talk about London Road, which you know was such a huge hit at the um, at the National, both in the then Cottesloe and, and Olivier. But um, yeah. uh, for those who don't who hadn't seen that show or don't know what it was, t- t- tell us a bit about about how it came about and and why it spoke to you musically. <laughs> I, first of all, I like the way you say "task with delivering" rather than te- <laughs> teaching to sing. <laughs> um, yeah, London Road was one of those really. Uh, weird, fortunate accidents that seemed almost destined to happen. Um, mm. uh, um, a man who was running the uh, National Theatre Studio Music at that stage, mm. called Clive Paget, uh, organised a week of musical theatre exploration. He got together three writers, three playwrights, and three composers, and we were uh, we were put into pairs, which stayed for the week. Um, and in our pairs, we went off into separate rooms and talked about what we might make together. Mm-hmm. And I was paired uh, completely randomly with Alaki Blythe, who's of the genuinely randomly. There was no. Yeah, there's no. Uh, well, uh, unless there's something someone's not telling me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so Alaki's a verbatim playwright, and she explained mm-hmm. to me what she does, which is she uh, finds out about usually quite dramatic events that are happening somewhere in the country. She normally hears about them on the news. Uh, she travels to that part of the country and gets to know people who are close to the events, interviews them and records them. And then with their permission, uh, she will use those recordings. She'll edit those recordings into plays. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the way the actors perform them is they have in-ear monitors so they can hear the voices of the real people uh, in -hmm. in their ears as they perform. And they stay almost parrot what they hear. Mm -hmm. Uh, They obviously have their own gestures, but it's all based on the original intonation of the of the speaker. So there's Mm -hmm. a sense in which they're they're possessed by the original speakers. Mm -hmm. Um, And after a moment of thinking, oh gosh, I thought we were going to be doing some original writing together. I realised that actually it is very original what Alaki does, and not only that, but um, focusing on the how of uh, the way people say things as much as if not more than focusing on the what they're actually saying which is what the Mm. more conventional verbatim theater does that you might have seen at the tricycle Mm. uh, the kind of tribunal um uh, verbatim style uh, Mm. which is which has its own you know wonderful um merits um Mm. this focusing on the how was a very a very um musical thing in a way and Mm. i could go away with the recordings and analyze the melodies of of what people are saying spontaneously. And mm-hmm. when you get to turning those things into choruses, obviously the element of repetition comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, yeah, it'd be great to um, create something which sort of sits halfway between normal speech and song and um, uh, 
uh, with the idea hopefully being that the audience will hear people speaking and think it is just speech, possibly with a little bit of underscoring coming in, and then mm -hmm. only realise maybe halfway through a song that actually what they're listening to is, is precisely notated and learned and qualifies as song. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll give you an example. So here's, here's, um, here's some, uh, a, a recording of Ron, who was the head of the Neighbourhood Watch in London Road, uh, welcoming people to the annual general meeting of the Neighbourhood Watch. Good evening. We're a bit short on residents tonight, so it doesn't matter. This really is our first idea. So from from that, um, I don't. You probably can't hear the good evening, welcome at the beginning. It's it's right at the start of the recording, so it's quite um, muffled. Mm. But um, that's it. Kind of struck me that this, that's a very theatrical thing in a way. I mean, he's presenting a meeting, so mm. I I took that and I spun it out. And those two phrases, good evening, welcome, and this really is our first AGM, became the keystone, the the kind of um, the centre, the soul of this song. So obviously we're we're already about a minute into the song. <laughs> I've only said about six words so far, <laughs> but I think it worked because it was the beginning of the of the of the piece, and we were mm -hmm. easing the audience into understanding what we were what we were up to. Yeah. Um, and uh, Nick Holder, who's singing there, does a, does a does an amazing job of um, going around these different different pitches that <laughs> kind of made. Yeah. Them, navigate um so what we when you re repeat the phrase like that what do you what was the the what's the thinking there that kind of fugue well effect? i mean i think it started it started actually as um i wanted i wanted there to be an extended period of of greeting and and welcoming mm -hmm. and we didn't have any more text that served that and within our rules <laughs> we, we we weren't going to make anything up mm -hmm. um but then I also wanted it because it, the piece is about you know people who died. I wanted it to have a, a quality, not so much of a, a funeral service, but maybe a kind of a memorial service. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a meeting that happened at some some time after the events, the central events mm -hmm. of the story. So it had more of that quality of a memorial. Um, and weirdly, yeah. my 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 grandpa had died about a month before I wrote that song. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, it's all a bit blurred in my mind. But we we had his funeral around that time wow. um and i started spinning that that ostinato that crotch and I, and I kind of let it carry on until it had formed a, a paragraph that i liked mm -hmm. and when it and when it did it was quite long and i thought well i've only got these words but i've got this length of paragraph and i thought i'm just gonna have to you know we're gonna have to live with that because it makes emotional sense so 
I don't see mm-hmm. why it needs to be more more decorated or more developed than than that, especially given right. its location in the show. Have you got any other material from from London Road? Um, yeah. Uh, Alecky recorded the residents of London Road talking about uh, their gardens and the ways in which they tried to um, um, kind of revive the community spirit in the area following the awful events of the story. And here, here are the residents talking about their gardens. I've got nearly 17 hanging baskets in this back garden. They've got a lot of petunias and impatience um, and, and things. Marigolds, petunias, we've got a bear. We've got busy lizzies, hanging geraniums, right. all sorts in that basket anyway. Hanging petunias in the basket, hanging basket. So um, uh, I, I thought it'd be nice to kind of weave those voices together in a kind of, in, in, in sort of organic tendrils of uh, <laughs> flower and vine-like um, music. Uh, and this was the result. I got nearly 17 hanging baskets in this back garden. Believe it or not, begonias and petunias and um, impatience and things. Marigolds, petunias, and we got up there. We got busy lizzies, hanging geraniums, all right, see. There's all sorts in that basket anyway. Hanging lapillias, petunias in a basket, hanging basket. That's a fuchsia. Special name, I just call them lilies. They're a lily type. There is a special name, and for the first time this year, I've got a couple of um baskets begonias and petunias and um impatience and things. Begonias, petunias, petunias. We got petunias. Yeah, so you get the get the idea there. Yeah, um, it's gorgeous. So, so um, are you doing all your orchestrations on that as well? Yeah, yes, that's that's all all my orchestration. Yeah. And is that something? I mean, did you ever consider farming the orchestrations out, or is that something you would like to complete control of? As, as the um, I felt so, I felt so kind of personally involved with the score once once I completed the piano vocal part that I couldn't really bear to think of anyone else <laughs> doing anything mm-hmm. with it. Um, so yeah, I took that. I took that on. I took that on myself. Um, and actually, you know, when you when you do commission someone to orchestrate something, essentially you're asking them to just take what they see on the piano staves and uh, explode it out to a to a band. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found when I was orchestrating London Road that little ideas for counter melodies and some of them were you know were related to other parts of the material in the show meant that as I was orchestrating, I was essentially continuing the composition process mm. um, and I didn't I didn't want that to you know not be part of what I did so I, I carried on but you it. you uh, I know David Trubsell was the musical director on, on the show yes. and played a big role in I remember that he was saying that he rehearsed all the songs backwards because they were so rhythmically complicated that he taught yeah, the ends so, of each song so that, so well, that even actually, the cast a, struggled that's, <laughs> that's a great that's well. a that's a great technique and I'm uh, and I'm so glad I worked with David um, for many reasons but that's one of them because it's a great way to teach anyone anything Mm-hmm. Um, weirdly, as you as you move forward in time, it helps if you're reaching familiar territory rather than venturing forward into the unknown. So you actually yeah. save a lot of time, and people I should get say, a lot I of pleasure. Say, it, it, 
Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't teaching the music backwards. He was just <laughs> doing the last bit first <laughs> and the first bit last. Yeah, yeah a layer of complexity too far. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I know, <laughs> not for full disclosure here, but but obviously we're talking about future musical projects. But to, a, a musical is obviously a huge amount of work for a composer. Um, how, I mean, how do you manage that? And, and how do they come about? They're obviously ostensibly very um, costly things to put on. Uh, it's why a lot of them have a commercial sensibility just to make back the, the amount of money you've invested in trying to make them. Um, you're yeah, an artist with all sorts of interests and concerns and um, I guess want to pursue what you what you found beautiful and true. How, how, do, how does it feel being a composer of you know, one of the most successful British musicals of the last 20 years looking to try and do future musicals? Actually, it's yeah, I mean, it's been quite difficult over the last few years, just because London Road, in terms of its um, its parameters, you know, it's, it's a verbatim musical, um, and it's absolutely based on the very specific rhythms of the spontaneous human voice. Um, mm. And there's, there hadn't been much like that before. So it's a very difficult thing to follow. And uh, you know, down down the years, people have asked me and Alaki whether we'd do another one. We would say, yeah, if we find if we find the right thing, it'd be great. But mm-hmm. I, I think having having done that once, it was quite hard work, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you know, there'd be there'd be a danger of either repeating yourself or doing something which is similar less well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really would have to be the right thing if if we did that again. Um, uh, but having sunk myself so far into documentary song. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it's it's been it's been hard. I mean, I, I have been working on on a, a couple of things, um, and some of them are kind of close to um, close to being, uh, I would say, rehearsable, mm-hmm. um, possibly even producible. <laughs> great, great. That's what I'm um, Yeah. So um, these podcasts are kind of partly to kind of evoke, you know, as a reminder, all kind of what it is we miss about theatre in particular. And so I'm asking everybody whether they could pick a show. Um, from any point in their life, they could have worked on it or they could have been something they watched that really inspired them and and sort of changed them in some way. And to say uh, you know, why that was and what it was about that, that piece of work that spoke to you. I think there's probably a couple of things I'd mention. Uh, one is um, a production of The Pirates of Penzance, of all things, that my parents took me to at Drury Lane. And I must have been about nine, eight, somewhere between eight and ten. Um, and it was just so packed full of energy and, and joy. Um, and weirdly, I'm not really that into Gilbert and Sullivan now, <laughs> but it, it was just such an energetic show um, and so wonderful to watch. And I really wanted to be part of it, actually. I, I, mm. I wanted to be up on the stage doing that, what those people were doing. Um, mm. So I kind of caught a bit of a bug from that. Um, mm. And and in terms of straight plays, um, the production of The Midsummer Night's Dream that happened at the National in 1992, I think. It was early 90s um, anyway. It's Robert Lepage. Um, it was the dubbed the, the Mud Summer Night's Dream. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it had Timothy Spall as bottom, who he, he kind of, he stayed in mud for half the show um, and, mm. and emerged from it like a sort of monster at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't just the mud. It was full of, I mean, it's classic Lepage, but full of, you know, technical effects mm. um, that I found really moving. Um, yeah. I wasn't distanced by those at all, and I and I think that's probably the first time I realised that the technical side of theatre can be a, can be a bridge into the the meaning of it and the and the movingness of it. 
you know, you've done shows in the, in, in our theatre a lot. And and what is it about the Almeida that you find interesting, either either orally or just as a space anyway for theatre? Um, can you say anything about that at all? Um, well, I really like I really like working in in smallish spaces. Actually, the, the Almeida is not mm. the smallest theatre I've ever worked in, but it's mm. it's sort of getting towards being quite intimate mm. in that way. Um, Although, because it has a circle and a, and a rake up to the back, if you are sat at the back of the circle, it can it also has the potential to feel quite grand and epic, which I also mm. like. Um, but I suppose I suppose uh, the the way I approach a show at the Almeida, I, I'll kind of call upon a, a bank of skills that I that I first learned really working at the Donmar with Michael Grandage um, from sort of two thousand and three to whenever he left. I think it was twenty ten or twenty eleven, and I did a, a huge number of shows there and and learned an awful lot. Um, mm. about uh, how to how to kind of uh, deliver a sound score to a space which the actors in essentially share with the audience in a way mm-hmm. um, it's very different from conventional cross arch theater in, in in that sense um, and mm. more exciting but obviously uh, less lucrative <laughs> so, there's, <laughs> so there's a strange there's a strange tension there but I, I think it remains my you know my preferred way of um, Mm-hmm. Of, of working to to have that intimate shared space where the where the audience can really eyeball the actors and and vice versa and it also yeah. means that the actors are never off the hook all of them have to be absolutely focused absolutely attentive to every action even if they don't speak for pages and they're on stage um i think it's i think it really it's you know the almeida and the donmar and spaces like that are, are amongst the most exciting in, in london if not the world well, soon to reopen, we hope. Um, so let's uh, close, and thank you for doing this. Why don't you um, introduce and pick one final piece of yours to tell us what it is and and um, how it came about, and then, and then let's hear it. Um, I think I'd choose... Um, actually, it's hard. Um, can I choose... Can I... <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather I chose Red or Paradise Lost? <laughs> <laughs> oh heck, let's have a bit of both. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, so Red was a was a show I did at the Donmar um, with Michael Grandage back in two thousand and nine, and again uh, on Broadway in in twenty ten. And it's all about the artist Mark Mark Rothko, uh, who's a sort of nineteen forties fifties abstract expressionist, um, and. I found it was just wonderful feeding off his paintings and in the same way that I could approach sound uh, and music together in a quite abstract way when we did Time in the Conways, um, I, th- I, f- I felt I achieved something quite integrated in that regard with Red um, and it's particularly inspired by, by this wonderful work of Rothko in which art becomes pure colour and I sort of felt that I, I was reaching towards music becoming pure sound with Red. So here's an example of that.
suppose my my own version of abstract expressionism and my own version of minimalism slash pop art. Mm. Um, minimalism so, yeah. is a big thing for you, isn't it? Like, yeah, you know, I, mean, I, I think it, I think it is for every composer of my generation. It's it's it's. I mean, it, it is an orthodoxy now, but it's one that none of us can really escape, and it's a glorious orthodoxy. Hmm. Good. Um, and so... finally, Paradise Lost. I'll just I'll, I'll play you the I'll play you the it's the, it's the fall from heaven, the moment when um, uh, the satan and the and his cohorts are banished from heaven by god and fall to earth um and there's that big gap, gap in the middle um almost fades away to silence and then suddenly resumes and that's the moment in the choreography where we had them beginning to fall um it was actually quite lo-fi wasn't it they were sort of they were on chairs and kind of flailing about and we had video projected at the back that suggested a great descent I know it was really amazing. Exciting. We had yeah. six actors in six chairs, and then you you managed to make it feel like we were, you know, in in the middle of some terrible apocalyptic uh, <laughs> war scene, and ending with all the angels in the lake of fire. Yeah. So anyway, here it is. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Almeida Theatre Podcast. Recently, we've had to take the very difficult decision to temporarily close the Almeida. As you can imagine, this has had a profound financial impact on us as a charity. And right now, every penny counts for us. If you are able to support us during this time, any donation, large or small, will make a huge difference. Take care, and I look forward to seeing you at the Almeida soon. Thank you for listening to the Almeida Theatre Podcast. For more, head to almeida.co.uk forward slash explore.